This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by the North Face and its new Ventrix jacket, the best jacket in the world, at least according to the best climber in the world, Alex Honnold. Uh, I mean, the, the Ventrix is legitimately my favorite jacket I think I've ever had. Um, you know, climbing things in the winter in the shade, I was basically just like climbing in the jacket all the time. It just works really well. Alex Honnold is right on the verge of becoming a household name, but if you're not familiar, he's one of those once-in-a-generation athletes that sort of redefines what's possible in a sport. He holds all sorts of speed records, and this year climbed El Cap in Yosemite without a rope. But when I talked to him, it was really clear that he really likes this jacket. For, for me, one of the things that I really like about the Vendrix is that it's um, super resilient, basically. It's really rugged. Like, I climbed quite a bit in it, and I was like climbing chimneys and wide cracks and basically just like rubbing it against rock for, for hundreds or thousands of feet. And it, uh, you know, it's got like two tiny little holes. It's like a really rugged jacket. In your own words, how does the jacket actually work? I think it's magic. No, I mean, I have no idea how the jacket works. What he does know is that it's light, durable, tough, and it's dynamic venting adjusts to your body temperature to keep you cool as you heat up. So you can spend more time climbing, less time changing clothes. Not that Alex would have any experience with that, since he lives in a van and only owns one pair of clothes. I mean, you know, to some extent, I do own a, you know, a few pairs of clothes. But that's why I like the Ventrix, is that it's just my only jacket all the time. It's just always in the bag. And you don't really need to think about if it's going to be super cold or mediumly cold or windy or rainy or whatever. You just always take the Ventrix and it just always works. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Interview. I'm just going to test your guys' mics. So with Chris Katz. There are a lot of different ways that people train their bodies. And a friend of mine has been trying out most of them recently. He got a strength coach, and he hired a specialist to film him running and analyze his stride. And he stepped up his nutrition, too. Instead of Top Ramen and frozen hot dogs, it's been salmon patties vegetables. And when we talk about performance and talk to elite athletes, these are generally the things that we focus on and ask about. How do I get stronger and faster? What do I eat to get that way? Once you get to a certain level of competition, however, in a weird way, this stuff starts to matter less and less. Everyone is extremely fast and extremely strong. They're all eating the right stuff. Among elite performers, the differences are mostly mental. Who can handle the pain the longest? Who can remain calm under pressure? All this stuff happens in your mind. How do you train that? If you're an average civilian, you read books and listen to podcasts and try to figure out what the secret sauce is. If you're something like an Olympic-level athlete, on the other hand, there's a good chance that you talk to Dr. Michael Gervais about what he calls high-performance psychology. Gervais is most well-known for working with the Seattle Seahawks in the season leading up to their 2014 Super Bowl win, and with Kerry Walsh and Misty May Trainer leading up to their winning gold in beach volleyball at the London Olympics. He also worked with Felix Baumgartner when he jumped from the edge of space as part of Red Bull's Stratos program. But what can he do for the rest of us? What's going on in our brains when we psych ourselves out? And how do we keep it from happening? We sent outside editor Chris Kyes to Gervais' office in Laguna Beach to find out. So one of the things I'm really curious about is sort of where we place mental training in the whole context of all athletic performance. You know, my, my own theory is that 
I don't know, 90% of athletes really just overlook that part and are so focused on physical training and nutrition, um, but, but probably come to you and for the first time are actually addressing this. So do you put it up equally among those other two kind of pillars of, of overall performance? I mean, how, what kind of importance should we be placing on it? As humans, there's only three things that we can train. We can train our craft, we can train our body, and we can train our mind. That's it. We spend ridiculous amounts of time training our craft and our body. Like we spend most of our time there. And if if those are the only three that we can train, and we understand that the further we go in our craft, the more important the mental part of the game is, that's because it hasn't been trained. We haven't trained it enough. It is totally trainable. It's not hard. It's just invisible. It is, it's not, it's relatively simple to understand but it is hard to stick with it because it is invisible. Like when you train your body, I don't know, you do squats, whatever you do, you get more flexibility and you can see the strength and size and it's noticeable. You can track it. We can also track the mental training as well. Heart rate variability, skin conductance. You know, there's lots of ways that we can train at EEG. We can see the artifact of how our mind works, but we can't see the actual mind. We don't know where thoughts originate. We don't know how much they weigh. We don't know where they go, right? The, the, literally, we have no way to capture them. Okay, so then the question is like, how do you train it? it I'm t and seriously, it's not complicated. It's really simple. Have a philosophy, know what that is. You know, who are you? That becomes the grounding force for any sort of psychological work. Who are you? Now that is a lifelong discovery and journey but it begins with etching something down, getting something down on paper. If we think about the most influential people in the world, it's spiritual leaders and political leaders, we know what they stand for. We knew it, we, we clearly know what Jesus stood for, Confucius, Buddha. We, we know because they, they were so clear that's what they thought about, that's the words that they used, and their actions backed it up. Political leaders, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, we know exactly what they stood for. Their thoughts, their words, and their actions had alignment. That's, that's what a philosophy is. Okay. Now, that's like kind of part one. Part two is having a clear vision of how you want your future to look. How do you want your future self to be? What does that look like? Because if we don't have a destination or a direction, it gets really hard to stay on track. Okay, then the other side is, uh, so philosophy and vision, and then there's a very mechanical approach to how to train your mind to be confident, to be calm, to be focused in the present moment, uh, and to be a, to know how to trust yourself. Those are all very, very mechanical things to be able to do. It just requires a disciplined approach, just like physical and craft. Require. So, so those are things that are the three things you can work on. Do I have a finite ability? Um, that's inherent to my, you know, to my genetic makeup that's going to allow me to only get so far working the mind in the same way that, you know, working with weights that I'm only, you know, with my makeup going to be, unless I start injecting steroids, <laughs> going to be able to, to, to lift so much weight. Yeah, I think that's a great question. We don't know. We are understanding better the limits of training the body. You know, we do know that. We don't know what the limits are for training the mind. We do understand, though, that my ability to be in the present moment is the limiter or the expander of my potential. So 
if I can't spend time in the present moment, if I can't drive my mind to here and now and sit in this moment, whatever this moment is, if it's difficult or it's wonderful and easy, but that becomes the constrictor of my potential or the expander. And that is trainable. And I, I don't know how many thoughts we have. No one really does. There's ideas that there's thousands of thoughts. So this is, this is like not having thoughts. It's just being really clear, observing your own thoughts, observing your own experience in the present moment, observing the unfolding moment. I know we can get better. People have been trying to figure this out for a long time. How does it work? I'll tell you as sure as I am that the capacity or yeah, let's say capacity, the capacity to live in the present moment, that is really what it comes down to. And that's trainable. So take, for example, Alex Arnold, you know, talk about, <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of people who can climb El Capitan um, to do it without ropes, free soloing the entire thing. What do we know actually about people who have brains like that? Is there anything tangible that we know about the way that their brain works that's differently other than just, say, being in the present moment? Okay, so let's separate two things, the mind and the brain. So we'll separate those two. So the brain is the tissue that sits in our skull, 3.2 pounds of silly putty, right? We really don't know what it is. Brightest minds in neuroscience are really still trying to figure out what that is, how it works. Then there's the mind. <laughs> where does that sit? We don't, we have no idea where that sits. Okay. So the brain and the mind are separate and we have a better understanding of the brain. Yes, there are some scans, if you will, of the brain to, to try to understand what's different, what makes people special. I don't think Alex has done a, a brain scan that I'm aware of, but I would bet that um, he's able to turn off his judgment area. And that sounds like there's a joke in there, but there's a part of our brain that's responsible for um, self-critique and judgment. And that's part of the brain keeps most people safe, small, stuck in life because they're constantly critiquing themselves that this isn't going to be good enough. It's not going to work out. That won't be good enough. This won't work. It's that over analytical judgment, self-critical piece. And we have a relatively good sense of where that is in the brain. And I would, I, I'd bet. I mean, as a hypothesis, I would imagine that that part of his brain he's able to control so well that he knows how to turn it off so that he can drive all of his attention to the next finger hold, to the next move he needs to be in. Actually, more eloquently said would be drive all of his attention to this finger hold, right? And he needs to be able to do that to, to execute in such a dangerous environment. And when you talk about the best of the best and of the, the clients that you've worked with, is that a common trait throughout a lot of them that being able to turn off judgment? Is that like one of the key pieces to performance? Somehow they're able to drive their experience into the present moment and be there for an extended period of time. And judging oneself is the, the thing that pulls us out of the present moment. So yeah, there's a thread there that's really important. They have figured out how to use their mind to expand their ability to be in the present moment, which therein expands the access to the potential that they've already worked their ass off to cultivate their craft and their body. So yeah, there is a thread there. If, you know, Alex Honnold came in here and wanted to work with you and I came in here and wanted to work with you because I wanted to be better at my job, would, would our paths look 
similar or um, completely different in the athletic space versus, say, the business world or other optimizing, you use that word, um, our best selves in, um, in all realms of our lives? The, the only difference between Alex and Old or people that operate like special operators in the military or people in extreme hostile environments is that there's real danger on the line. Okay. The rest of us are mostly dealing with perceived danger. The most dangerous thing for most people, certainly there are physical threats that, that people have to deal with. And I mean like muggings and murders and like there's that, but it's, it's relatively rare in certainly in America. The most dangerous thing that most people have to work with is what other people will think of them. It's the death of ego. It's the death of social preservation. That, that is, if that's the most dangerous thing, we've got to shake ourselves from it and say, what am I doing? And so we can use people like Alex to say, look, look what's possible, you know, in our storytelling of what we can do. So perceived danger and real danger is the, is the a fulcrum for people. And so the work that Alex, let's say, would do and you would do, it's bespoke and customized for each person. But yes, there are very predictable things that we would spend time talking about. Who are you? Right? Get that grounded sense about you. He and likely would want to train uh, something on the spectrum of like be more calm, more confident, more focused. He's probably got a good handle on those, but wants to get better at them. You would probably want to get better at one of those. Maybe you want to get better at the recovery platforms, like how to think optimistically instead of pessimistically. And so some people are listening saying, optimism. Oh, I knew that this was going to be a soft conversation. Optimism is at the center of mental toughness. Tell me somebody that doesn't want to be mentally tough. We all want to be mentally tough. Like to, to be able to face down difficult situations begins with having a psychological framework to find what could be great, what might be good in this. So let me keep fighting. Let me stay with it. How, so how do you do that? What, yeah. What's an exercise that you work on? Okay, great. So let's use science and then a little bit of um, the funk that comes from the applied nature of science, right? Okay, so science is great in a laboratory and we need to have that rigor to understand things and make claims. But in the real world, sometimes it's a little bit harder to, to replicate. So there's a re piece of research out of UPenn um, that suggests that people that for seven days, if they just tracked and wrote down three good things. And at the end of the day, they wrote those down. So they, they woke up in the morning and became researchers of good. And at the end of the day, wrote those three things down. And they did that for seven days. Those that came into that study that were depressed, stabilized their depression. That's cool. Those that came into the study that were not depressed at the end, and they marked it at like at the end of the study, one month, I think uh, three month and six month follow-ons. Don't hold me to that. I think that that's it that they demonstrated um, overall life satisfaction, they overall wellness, like there was a significant increases. But what that research was studying was optimism and gratitude. So that we use that three good things. Okay, so it's as simple as we say, go on a run for 30 days, reorganize how your brain works, because your brain and my brain are designed for survival. Our ancient ancestors gave us this great tool to scan the world and find what's dangerous to avoid threat. Okay, that's not that's not great for optimization though. We need that, but but that's going to keep us safe. Okay, to push on the edges of instability, that's where greatness is revealed. That's where our craft and our potential is expressed. On the edges of instability, 
We need to cultivate and front load and train our mind to be still there, to be focused in the present moment and find what could be great on the other side. That's optimism. And so three good things, 30 days, write it down. It's an incredible training mechanism. Sounds super simple, but it trains the other part of our brain, which is to scan the world, the smaller part of our brain, to scan the world and find what's good. Yeah, I had an experience in high school. Our soccer coach um, brought in somebody to do um, visualization before our game, about an hour before every game. I, n- I remember distinctly like the difference of walking out of that room towards the field and being in that, the headspace of ready to play versus um, where we were before. And, and having mapped out, you know, I remember him calmly walking through like scenarios in the game and, and visualizing ourselves handling those, and it just makes such a difference. It was really impactful. You can't outperform your vision. If you do, you just got lucky, you know? And so doing imagery training does, the, the science on this is really strong, but imagery training, what it does is it helps you train refocus. So when your mind water, wanders from the task at hand, it's really simple to, to recognize that, that you're thinking about something else other than your future soccer game, right? So it trains refocus. It increases the ability to be confident because you're getting some maps or some looks or some frames of what the future could look like. And so when you actually arrive there, you're more familiar with it. It also lays neurological tracks. We think it helps to groove the, there's no such thing as muscle memory, but whatever that stands for, right? It's actually the neurological patterning that, that we're working on. So it helps to groove that. We also think that imagery creates myelinization. It's a fancy phrase for the fat that sits on the nerves in our body, that when we think and feel an image in our mind playing out, that we're actually laying a more efficient track from a nervous standpoint. So that means we can go do the thing we want to do more easily and readily. Um, I guess I should explain that more. The fat around the nervous nervous system, the higher the fat, the more conductivity, the faster those impulses move across those wires, if you will. So that's really important. And another way to increase myelinization is from having a healthy and proper amount of omega fish oils in your diet as well. And both of those support myelinization. Okay, so there's a lot of reasons why imagery really works. It's just hard. Well, do you have a specific protocol that, that yeah, you yeah, like yeah. people to follow? Like, what does that look like? Is it so mechanically? How much time? When do they do okay. it? Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Minimally effective dose for meditation is six to eight minutes a day. Now, mental imagery, performance or success imagery is different, but they're kissing cousins. They're very close. The first part, so let's say you make a commitment to six to eight minutes, somewhere in there. 20 minutes is an optimal dose, by the way. Okay. Now, mechanically, if you want to set out and do some imagery, the first part would be to close all the mental files in your mind. You got all this stuff running in the background. So you just take a moment and close all those files. How do you do that? You just kind of settle into your body, settle into where you are, recognize that you can't think about two things at the same time. It's like ping pong. It's either, you know, you're, you're hitting it or it's coming back to you. You can't do two balls at the same time. So You only get one thought at a time. So let's focus on just one thing. And if that one thing that we focus on at this beginning phase is your breathing, you get two two benefits from it. Long exhales have been primed from our ancestors for safety. So we, we were able to take a long exhale when we got away from the jackal that was chasing us or the saber tooth that was chasing us, a long exhale. Okay, so if you just took a nice big inhale, so like four or five seconds in, 
and then felt some tension at the top and then a long exhale and just paused. And all of your mind was focused on that. And it's about a 10 second breath is what it is, 10, 12 seconds, somewhere in there. That that mechanically slows down your mind to be focused in just the present moment. And you get the side gold dust benefit of getting some relaxation. That's the beginning phase. Clear the amphitheater, close down the mental files. Okay. Then phase two is waking up all of your senses. So what does that mean? That we don't want to just see success. We want to feel it. We want to smell it. We want to taste it. We want to, you know, have all of our five or six or seven or eight senses. We're not sure how many we really have. We want to wake up all of our sensory parts of our brain. Okay. How to do that. This is like going to sound a little silly, but I think it's the best way I know how is imagine a fruit. So in your mind's eye, just imagine a fruit. So what fruit comes to mind for you? Banana. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I'm a psychologist. There's lots of jokes in that. I won't go there with you. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so this banana, then you see the, the texture, you see the edges, you see the color, you see the difference between like the black part on the stem, right? Okay. So imagine all of that. And then you would imagine um, the size and, and the texture. Imagine what it feels like to hold it what it would sound like to open it up, what the texture on the inside is, what it would feel like to take a bite. You feel that texture in your mouth. And if you're doing this right now, like you'd probably get some water in your mouth. Like it's mm -hmm. like, okay. So you just wake up all of your senses. Then you go into success imagery and you see what you want to get better at. It could be public speaking. It could be uh, a difficult conversation. It could be a jumper at the end of an NBA finals. You know, it could be lots of things. And then in that third phase, what we want to do is um, we want to get good at it. It's a trainable skill. Imagery is an ability and a skill that means we can get better at it. So you want to start slow. So imagine getting out of the blocks if you're a runner. You want to see yourself slowly getting into the position of being in the blocks. And then maybe just at like 50% speed or even 30% speed, see yourself coming out of the blocks with appropriate kinetic response and, and action. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then as you get better, you can speed it up. And at the same time, as you're going through, a, until you get to real time, if you will, you want to make sure that you can keep the color and the shape and this and all of that texture of our imagination, all, all the senses intact. And if they aren't, if that's starting to fade, do you kind of reboot and start with the, yeah, the fruit? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I wouldn't go back to the, yeah, that's a good question. I could just go back to the blocks again or the podium if you're doing public speaking or the living room if you're going to have a conversation with a loved one that's hard. That I would, um, I just go back to that, you know, and then a couple things happen. A lot of people will say, hey, I make mistakes in my mind. What should I do? Well, press rewind. I mean, you could be as creative as you want during this, but press rewind, see it kind of go backwards or just start over. No problem. Um, one of the hall of fame athletes in the UFC ultimate fighting championship, we were talking about imagery and he says, you know, I can feel what it feels like to have my mouthpiece in to walk up the the four or five steps to get into the cage door. I can feel the energy of the environment. I can hear the close, uh, the cage door close behind me. I can feel the tarp underneath my feet, that familiar bounce. And then I notice my heart begins to race. Like his heart is really pounding, but he's just sitting in his living room. So like, we know this, we know it works. We know it works. Our body physically changes when we create amazing images in our mind. So, 
it is reserved for the disciplined, for the people who really want to get better at something. It's an incredible skill to invest in, for sure. So uh, another through line that I see is the need to be comfortable with discomfort. And well, first, I, I want to hear you talk a little bit about that and then and then to hear some of the, again, specific mechanical exercises that you, you might give out to an athlete um, to practice that. It's overused, like get comfortable being uncomfortable. You know, it's totally overused. What that means, though, is that we have to understand and really embrace that we're looking for challenges in our life to do difficult things, right? So doing difficult things is a requirement to get towards your closer towards your potential in the same way that physically like stressing your body is uh is gonna what's what's gonna grow that muscle that's exactly right micro tears you get on the edge a little micro tear and it builds stronger and scar tissue and all that right okay yes same thing emotionally so there's nothing mentally that's hard about this it's the emotional piece the emotional instability that happens when we're right on the edge of our capacity. Now, we've used sport and training as a pathway into emotional instability, fear, if you will. Mm -hmm. We can do it in other ways. It's vulnerability is really what we're talking about here. Now, if your body's just strong and your emotional capacity is weak, that becomes the choke point for your potential. That when we invest so much of our time on our craft and our body, and then we show up in a difficult environment and we don't have the mental control to harness our emotions, we choke off our, our craft. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how do we get better at it? We, on a regular basis, embrace physically getting uncomfortable and then emotionally getting to the place of instability. That, again, it only comes from, from being vulnerable and being able to articulate what's happening within you. That's how you get better at it. It's emotional intelligence. And part of it is being able to experience difficult emotions, naming them, talking about them, sharing them. That's like how we become stronger at it. And if you open up that portal and you expand that part of your human experience, there is a benefit, not only just for performance, but there's a, a freedom that mm -hmm. comes with it. Now I'll go full circle is that to decouple what you do from who you are is a really incredible gift to give yourself. To decouple that I am not just what I do. So when I go on whatever stage or public environment where people are watching what I'm doing, that it's not me. I am much larger than the thing that I do, right? Okay, mechanically, how do we do this? Well, it's as simple as one of the ways that we train, I ask people to train is 10 women in 10 days or 10 men in 10 days, you know, it's cross gender, if you will, or, um, you know, if you're gay, it would be the same, same, uh, gender. And that sounds like, okay, what are we talking about? <laughs> 10 women in 10 days. Hopefully they're single, yeah. not married. Well, so <laughs> yeah, 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 this, this isn't about having sex with somebody or getting a phone number. This is about, um, recognizing somebody that's beautiful. And then de develop that emotional instability to walk up to them in a public place and comment on their beauty. Everything that you need to, to build emotional strength is right there because that's hard to do. Okay. The next thing that takes place is that just be still and wait for their response. Okay. Now this is a deeper level of vulnerability because if you come off like a creep, you're going to get it back. And they're going to say, oh my God. And they're going to say, 
what a creep, whatever. And they'll, they'll walk away. Okay. So you're going to learn a lot about your approach to other people as well. If you're really nervous, they'll sense that they'll also get moments in time where people will just cry because they'll say the water up and they'll say, no one's ever said that to me. And so now there's a deeper level of vulnerability. Okay, so this is not meant to be weird. It's meant to really challenge people to get right on the edges. And there's another good piece of science about purposefully doing something that is unbecoming and doing it publicly. Like one of the heavyweight boxers that I spent time with, he had a thing about um, looking, he had to look a certain way and that was becoming problematic for him. Like he couldn't find freedom because he had to look a certain way. So we put him in a half shirt um, and really tight shorts and had him eat lunch by himself in a very crowded area. No cell phone, no newspaper, no distractions. And so he had to just sit there with his gut kind of hanging out, if you will, and learn about his true relationship with himself. So yeah, like there's lots of ways to push on the edges here. And those are, those are two of them. And are you always con- kind of coming up with new ones of those? They, they sound like, like torture tests. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we ha- just have fun with them. But th- the concept is still emotional instability. That's, it requires vulnerability and it requires courage to do that. Yeah, for me personally, so I've been a runner all my life. Uh, a couple of years ago, got really into mountain biking. First season on a mountain bike was great. I was just having so much fun. Had a couple falls and noticed like the next year just, an increasing amount of timidity when, when, you know, a big obstacle is in the way or something gnarly to ride. And it's just sort of progressively getting worse to the point where I'm, you know, I'm ready to dismount at the, at the smallest obstacle. How do I, how, how do I work on something like that? Okay. Well, it, it sounds like you had something that kind of jolted your emotional response, right? And it mm-hmm. changed your thinking pattern. And then it changed from there, your behavioral pattern. Does that sound right? Yep. Yeah. So that was like some sort of trauma, if you will. Mm -hmm. Trauma with a small T. It's not trauma with a big T, small T. Okay. So the first thing to to, um, reorganize is like, how bad do you really want it? That's a question for you. Um, Well, at this stage in my life, I just want to enjoy myself. So it's not like I'm competing, but... um, but I'd like to be able to keep up with my friends, let's say. I want that pretty badly. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. Then if that's the case, like the second kind of easy question is like, do you want to do the work to change the response pattern that's keeping you safe? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So this response pattern that you have developed is keeping you safe. And you're mm-hmm. saying, yes, I want to move into the edges of instability, of unsafety. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Are you sure? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. All right. And then um, I'm going to make something up. Say it's a, a five foot drop. I don't know what it is. It a mm-hmm. boulder? What was it, the thing you were yeah, on? Yeah, yeah, or like a yeah, like a big boulder drop. Yeah. Okay. So, what type of drop are we talking about? Like how how high? Yeah, oh, three feet. Okay. So then you then you would start with having great command of your mind at a one foot drop. Hmm. So you go in with great thoughts. Like I'm, I don't know what that is for you. It could I'll make something up. Like, um, okay, here I've got I got this something along those mm-hmm. lines. You figure out what the right type of thought is for you. Um, and then you go into one foot and you condition it, right? And then two feet, you condition it. Then three feet, you condition it, right? And so you'll work your way back up to it. Yeah. Okay, so you prime it with great thoughts and then you prime it in smaller incremental um, levels. 
And then you would also want to see yourself doing in your mind, three foot, four foot, five foot drops, but prime it with the mindset that you want, that you know is successful and good for you Mm -hmm. prior to the thing. Okay. Okay. The other thing is you got to set your mind. We call it mindset. So you got to set your mind on what you want to do and hold that conviction as long as you can. Now, now let's say that you, you have a three foot drop and you set your mind, you got great conviction, but you tighten up at the last minute and then, you know, um, your front wheel goes down before your, your back wheel. Okay. We got some problems now. Right. And, and you have another, uh, injury or mm-hmm. near injury that will cascade you to something more traumatic, small T and will set you back if you're not careful. Okay. So, so then you want to be able to be able to say to yourself afterwards, like, look, this is me going for it. You made the declaration that you want to do it. Difficult things. You want to get on the edge of stability. Mm. That in and of itself is what you want. Right. 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 Keeping up with your friends. is just a byproduct. What you yeah. really want is to challenge yourself, get on the edge, feel that aliveness. Your whole, you get this wonderful adrenaline dump to learn how to challenge that or not challenge channel that by having great thoughts and feeling what it feels like to go for it. So it's a good thing when I fall. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's a demonstration that you're going for it. Yeah. 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 The, the only, the only challenge with sports, like anything in the back country is that there's consequences. Yeah. But there's a reason you're in that sport and not the intellectual sport like chess or something like that. You like it. Yeah. You, in some ways you probably like having skin, knees and elbows and, you know, it's like fight club, you know, mm-hmm. they like mm-hmm. showing up the next day with a bruised, whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah. There's some truth to that. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Right. There's, there's, there's badges of like going for it. It's a demonstration of going for it. Now you probably want to say you're doing it off of, you know, 15 foot drops or whatever, but well, yeah, there's a progression. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know who I am now. I'm a forties with <laughs> a couple of kids. So <laughs> I got nobody to impress. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. Oh, good. Yeah. I, I, I want to say thank you. for. That's Michael Gervais talking with Chris Kyes. If you want to hear more, Gervais' podcast is called Finding Mastery. And in it, he talks with different people who are on the path towards mastering something, anything. It's a really great show. This episode was produced by Robbie Carver and me, with help from Jonathan Hirsch in Los Angeles. This episode was brought to you by The North Face and its new Ventrix jacket, which works when you do to keep you cool. The Outside Podcast is a production of PRX and Outside Magazine.